We are spending the season of Lent in a worship series called Peaceable Kingdom, which is the section heading in the King James Bible for these verses from Isaiah chapter 11. A shoot shall come up from the stump of Jesse, which is the father of David, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the reverence of the Lord. His delight shall be in the reverence of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge for the poor and decide with equity for the oppressed of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Notice those are words, not weapons. Righteousness shall be the belt of truth around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the baby goat, the calf and the lion will feed together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze together, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the snake, and the wean child put its hand in the snake's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The peaceable kingdom. Another part of this vision includes the images of beating our swords into plows and our spears into pruning shears, because nations shall no longer rise up against nation and we shall no longer train for war. The peaceable kingdom is rooted in nonviolence, which requires that we do not treat others the way we have been treated because we have been converted to the radical love of our enemies. As most of you know, every week we have spiritual support groups in the Delaware County Jail, and we invite those folks to write down their prayer requests and to bring them back. We post them on our board, and then we take them. I hope you will all take one this week and to pray for it. Sam handed me one from someone in jail that has a list of things you would expect, family, those in need, good health to my children, people in need around the world, Turkey and Syria, Ukraine and Russia. Notice the conflict there, praying for both sides. For freedom and a second chance. And the very first thing on this list says enemies. Fighting fire with fire will not work. We cannot just change the rulers. We have to change the rules. That's a quote from an incredible Christian theologian named Walter Wink. If you still haven't started any new spiritual practices this Lent, if you didn't pick up Dr. King's book, Strength to Love, last week, I recommend you pick this one up because it will blow your mind. Much of what I am sharing with you is laid out so clearly in this book, The Powers That Be, The Powers That Be, Theology for a New Millennium by Walter Wink. It is super easy to read. We cannot just change the rulers. We have to change the rules. 
We have to be converted to a new way of thinking and a new way of living. And so together in this season of Lent, when we are especially aware of God's call to release some of our own comfort and safety and power, that's what those Lenten practices are about, we are exploring together Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s six principles of nonviolence and several parables of the kingdom of God from the Gospel of Matthew. The first principle is that nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. It is active nonviolent resistance to evil. It is pacifism, not passiveism. It is not that we do nothing. It is that we do something different. We explore Jesus' parable of the absurdly generous boss who pays all the workers the same daily wage regardless of how they worked, how long they worked. To act nonviolently, we have to start thinking about the world in a different way. The second principle is that nonviolence seeks to win friendship and understanding. The end result of nonviolence is redemption and reconciliation. Last week, we explored the parable of the servant who was released from an unrepayable debt that he owed to his employer, but refused to release a fellow servant from a much more modest debt. This is part of Jesus' teaching on how to sustain relationships in community. Forgiveness opens the door for friendship and understanding with our enemy. This week, we're going to stick with that same parable because the principles from last week and this week are so woven together. But before we talk about what this week's principle is, I need you to pause and think about the person you hate. Now, I know that you would never say that you hate that person, but you have someone that makes your blood pressure go up when you think about them. Maybe it's not an individual you know. Maybe it's a public figure. Maybe it's a group of people. There is someone that you would erase if you could. Don't try to trick yourself out of it. And if you are really so holy that you insist there's no one like that for you, just think about whoever it is you dislike the most, okay? None of us are exempt from these very human feelings of having enemies. So whoever it is, get them in your mind and allow yourself a few deliciously judgmental moments to dwell on what it is that bugs you so much about that person. I'm doing it too. I have several options. You got it? Okay, here's the third principle. Nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice, not people. Nonviolence recognizes that evildoers are also victims. Son of a. Nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice, not people. Nonviolence recognizes that evildoers are also victims. This is one of the most important shifts in thinking if we are really going to be nonviolent. Unfortunately, I think it's also the most difficult one. And friends, it is difficult, I think, whether your enemy is intensely personal or intensely impersonal. The abuser is also a victim. I won't say too much about this because I have not been abused. But Jesus said of the ones who put the nails in his hands and feet, Father, forgive them, for they don't really know what they're doing. And if you're really mad at me right now, please hang in with me for a few more minutes. 
because the 1% are also victims. So are the titans of industry. So is President Trump. So is President Biden. Those who hurt us personally and those who are our enemies ideologically, they are all victims. And in no way, shape, or form does that let them off the hook. Okay? We live in a very legal-minded society. That's not exactly what we're talking about here. We are each and all responsible for our actions, and we are held to account by one another and by God. Being a victim is not an excuse. But it is a reason. Because guess what? I'm a victim too. And so are you. In the things that are done to us and in the things that we do to others, we are victims. The point is we are all victims of a larger system that is not designed for human flourishing. It affects us in different ways, but it affects us all. There is no outside to the system that we live in. None of us escape from it, no matter what color our skin is, or how much money we have, or how loved we were by our parents, we are all locked in the same system. This is the best interpretation, in my opinion, of the doctrine of original sin. Not that everyone is bad, but that everyone is the same. Everyone is a victim of the system, both the oppressed and the oppressors. Which is why nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice and not people. It's not enough to change the rulers. We have to change the rules. Because the way things are hurts everyone. So let's read again that story that we read last week. This is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. If you're using the Bibles that are in those pews there, it's page 1527. It's Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times, which is Peter being super generous. And Jesus said to him, not seven times, I tell you, but 77 or 70 times seven times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents, which is 150,000 years of wages, was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord did not just give him more time, but released him and forgave the entire debt. But that slave as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, which is about five months of wages, and seizing him by the throat, he said, pay me what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and used the same words, have patience with me and I will pay you. 
But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. The Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. These are the words of God for all people. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for that. The man with the unrepayable debt was also a victim. We must keep this in mind when we ask ourselves, why wouldn't he pay it forward? Why would you not? He had been so lavishly forgiven, why wouldn't he forgive? Perhaps it was because he had been living under the weight of his own debt for so long that he was terrified He knew what it was to wake up every day and be afraid that this might be the day that the debt gets called in. Because there was some reason he got that far in debt in the first place, and he was still a servant. So whatever he did with that money, it clearly was not having lasting benefits for him. Living in a social system that's driven by debt, not that we would know anything about that, It would be nearly impossible to trust that such a large debt was really just gone. I mean, he's just supposed to take his employer's word for it? The system has trained him to fight and hustle to survive, and it's not going to be easy to give that up. Should he have been more generous? Oh, heck yes. But if we allow him to be a real person, can we understand why maybe he wasn't more generous? I can. In order to see evildoers as victims, we must allow them to be as human as we are, which is so hard. We must acknowledge that they have childhoods and families and experiences that shaped their values just like we have. They have had opportunities and missed opportunities that have shaped their perspective on the world just like we have. They have made choices that have shaped their path just like we have. They are responsible just like we are. And they are victims just like we are. And once we realize that we share the human experience of having been shaped by the system we live in, we can shift our animosity from them to the wider system that has shaped us both. The system is the problem. The system is the enemy. The New Testament book of Ephesians says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers Things must change so that everyone can be free. Think again of that story that we just read, which if we put ourselves into it, indicates that the debt I owe to God is far greater than the debt anyone else owes to me. We are tempted to keep those kinds of accounts, aren't we? 
And the minute we assume that someone else is inherently worse or less human or less worthy than we are is the moment when we will be willing to use violence against them. We are the same. We are all created in God's image. We all fall short of the glory of God. We are all victims. We are all responsible. And we are all lavishly forgiven. I want to close with a story that Walter Wink tells in one of his other thicker books. It is the letter from a nonviolent activist to his torturer in 1976. You have beaten me, arrested me, insulted me very often. Do you know what I think, for example, when I'm crouching on the ground with my hands on my head, protecting myself from your dreadful truncheon blows? I feel extremely sad to see you obliged to hit me. It grieves me to be the occasion through which you lose your human dignity by hitting an innocent, defenseless companion. I am ashamed at the accumulation of advantages which have enabled me to choose not to go into the police under this regime, whereas you, because there was no other way out, because you come from a region which is exploited by people from my class, find yourself obliged to play this wretched part. On the one hand, myself full of possibilities, on the other, you, having fallen into the fateful trap and reduced to being the hired strongman of the truly privileged, injustice has made me into a man of studies and made you into a man of violence. Wink closes by saying this, the command to love our enemies reminds us that our first task towards oppressors is pastoral, to help them recover their humanity. Quite possibly the struggle and the oppression that gave it rise have dehumanized the oppressed as well causing them to demonize their enemies. We must pray for our enemies because somewhere within them is a profound longing to become synchronized with the divine source of us both. And deep within them, that source is trying to stir up the desire to be just. Amen. As Brian comes back to the piano, I'll offer you some time for reflection this morning. You may wish to close your eyes to block out distractions, or you may wish to gently allow your focus to rest on something else in the room. It is quite possible in this moment that you need to pay attention to your body and see what you're clenching. And let that be released and breathe. There is nothing more 
that I have to say this morning. I invite you to listen for how the Spirit of God is calling to you. crucified Savior, we pray. Amen.